Trillian looks like she's having the most fun in the movie the first time we meet her and she's wearing Zaphod's like <laughs> undergarments. She yep. looks like she's having a great time. And honestly, it's it's kind of fucked up that Arthur comes along and screws it up for her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Arthur's the villain the whole time. It's a karate kid situation. Welcome to episode 177 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm James. And I'm Luke. And this week we discuss Garth Jennings' 2005 film, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. We are excited to be joined this week by one half of the Between Lewis and Lovecraft podcast, Tyler Clausen. Welcome to the pod, Tyler. Oh yeah, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. It's so good to have you on. We've been friends on social media, at least for a while now. Yeah, I, I know we uh, we like each other's posts quite frequently. <laughs> um, I, and in fact, this this invitation was extended because I posted something about Hitchhiker's Guide last week with the with the book, and and you commented about how important this book was for you in your writing journey or something like that. So uh, yeah, I'd love to hear more about that, and then also um, about your podcast because I've been listening to it. I listened to the Gary Gygax episodes. Yeah. Um, which I was really enjoying getting into some of the behind the scenes stuff for him. Um, so I'd love for you to tell our listeners about the podcast as well. Sure. Uh, yeah, I, I, I love talking about um, books and authors and things. So I basically forced a friend of mine to sit down and listen to me talk <laughs> about stuff. Is, is that, is that Hannah? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I met okay. Hannah uh, as a, we, we were critique partners for uh, a writing group that we were in and um, it just kind of turned into something where she she's really good at reading, I, which is like a thing that I don't know if most people consider that a skill. But for me, like she re- I was so impressed. She reads like like a, a book a week legitimately, which just terrifies me. Um, and I can read a little bit, but then I have a lot of opinions on it. So we were kind of the perfect <laughs> team to sit down and, and talk about that. And the the whole thing started because my two favorite authors are C.S. Lewis and H.P. Lovecraft, um, which I don't think you could find two more opposite people on earth. And, uh, and yet they're the two guys that inspired me to become a writer. And so I wanted to kind of find that balance and see what led to them writing what they wrote and who they were as people. And that's where we started the show. And so the show became between Lewis and Lovecraft. And you had to unearth some skeletons in some of those closets, I assume. Oh yeah, especially with someone like H.P. Lovecraft. Oh yeah, yeah. We go, we rant pretty hard on on some of the dubious things that he was probably up to. Um, it's pretty oh, yeah. pretty fun. Um, even even Lewis, like I, you know, we don't we don't hold back. Uh, yeah, we, we haven't covered him yet, but I, I grew up reading Narnia and stuff, so mm-hmm. at some point I'm excited to get into that, and I, I wouldn't be wouldn't be shocked to hear that there's some questionable <laughs> stuff in his. He past. was he was a, a great guy. He really was my favorite fact. I think that we've learned about any anybody in this whole show that we've done is that 
uh, Lewis, when he was in college, had a had a bit of a spanking fetish. Um, <laughs> it's it's pretty great. Uh, so you learn some really cool things by digging into people's past. I remember when we were covering Tolkien, we talked about how like there's a connection there between C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. So I wonder how much spanking Tolkien was up to. <laughs> <laughs> Tolkien was pretty pretty uh, pretty stand up guy. Actually, we just just this last month did our our coverage of Tolkien. And he seemed like a really, really upstanding guy. So I, I don't think he ever really got into the whole Lewis spanking underground thing going on. Hey, you know, whatever floats your boat, nothing wrong with that as long as it's consensual, right? Yeah, man. Um, yeah. <laughs> so where does Douglas Adams fit into that, though? Well, we we did do Douglas Adams. Um, I think we did a two, two-parter. We might not have. We might have only done one episode on Douglas Adams, but I was really excited to cover him as quickly as I could just because um, when I started writing, you know, I, I kind of – I did the, the amateur writers thing where you spend too much time writing too many words and trying to make yourself sound smart. Um, I think everybody who has tried to write a novel or even a short story has done that. Um, and it wasn't until I started reading – Douglas Adams and specifically Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy that I realized you don't need to use as many words and you can still sound just as smart and you can have like your voice really come through because um, when you read Tolkien and even Lewis and fantasy and and even sci-fi like Isaac Asimov, you you don't hear their voice as much. You hear a voice and a narration, but when you're reading Douglas Adams, you are reading like the thoughts of Douglas Adams on a page, right? And uh, and so that really changed the way that I wrote. And right after reading the first three Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxies, uh, I got married. And for Christmas, um, the first year of marriage, I wanted to do something big for my wife. And so instead of going and spending money on Christmas, I wrote her a novel and uh, self-published it on Amazon and you know, put put it out there, and it's very much me trying to mimic um, Douglas Adams' voice in, in a story that is basically about like a like a teenage version of my wife finding a teenage version of me stuck in a bottle, and she has to help me get out. And what's the name of the book? It's called uh, Rebecca Moon and the Boy in the Bottle. Yeah, I, was, I had well, a whole series planned, and then I realized I don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, is, so is this a book you want people to check out, or sure? Or are you? Okay. Yeah, if, if they're if they're inclined. I mean, it, it was the first book I ever wrote, and it was it was written in. I did it for National Novel Writing Month, so it was written in one month. Yeah, NaNoWriMo. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so it's not top notch. It's not great quality, but uh, <laughs> if you want to see where. Tyler, the 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 guy that critiques everybody else's writing, <laughs> started writing. Then you can go there and see that. No, it gives you perspective, though, right? Having done it yourself, uh, oh, yeah. I think that's something I, I draw on a lot. Is you know, going through the process of trying to create really shows you something about it in a way that I think uh, if you if you just are purely a critic, you you maybe can't quite appreciate. So I like yeah. that. Um, we'll throw a link to that in the show notes if I can find it. Yeah, thanks. Um, that yeah. sounds good. But we are talking movie today. We are talking movie, yep. We'll start by just kind of opening up to general thoughts. I'd love to hear your experience watching it this time, your experience with the materials. All right, yeah. Um, I saw it a long time ago, like, because it came out right after Galaxy Quest came out. 
And, you know, Sam Rockwell was in that. And I was like... Alan Rickman. Yeah. yeah. This movie like, this had me gonna, thinking about that one a lot. This is basically just, just Galaxy Quest 2, right? So, and I was at the young enough age, I didn't quite understand the difference and all that. So, uh, so I saw it and I was like, yo, this sucks. This is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't like this at all. Um, and you had, had you read the book already? No, when, no. I'm you... talking like way back when it first came out. Okay. So you saw the movie before you read yeah, the book? Yeah, back in 2005. Gotcha. Um, I saw it in theaters and I was just like, this is not what I wanted. I wanted Galaxy Quest. And, okay. um, and so I put it to bed. I put it away, you know, and, and it, and then it wasn't till, uh, a long time later, almost, uh, man, almost like probably 10, 12 years later that I read the the book. And then I went out and immediately bought the Blu-ray and because I had forgotten that I didn't like it. And so I was like, man, let, I'm going to watch this movie. This is going to be great. The book was so good. And then I watched it and I was like, oh, right. I didn't like this. I, f- I remember that now. Um, but I was mm-hmm. able to appreciate it a lot more having read the story and then, uh, and then I put it away uh, for about five years, and then mm-hmm. uh, I got the invite from you guys, so I went and had to like go scrounge through all my Blu-rays, and actually plug my PlayStation in and play an actual disc on my TV for once. <laughs> wow! Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, I remember. I remember seeing it basically around that same time when it first was out. I don't know if it was when it was first in theaters or if it was on a on a you know DVD or whatever. But um, I remember distinctly remember Alan Rickman in his sort of Hans Gruber, Severus Snape fame was stood out to me as somebody in this movie. And then a lot of people that I didn't really know at the time that I wasn't that familiar with. Um, and it wasn't until later that I realized like how insane this cast is. Yeah. Uh, and it's something that I kept coming back to, but yeah, I, I feel like when I first saw the movie, I thought it was a fun romp and I thought that it was like sort of I, I don't think that it was necessarily the, the kind of thing that we were used to at that time when, when it was coming out. You know, it wasn't the typical sci-fi s- story. So I don't think that I really responded that well to it. But I think I walked away having enjoyed it somewhat for like a sort of lighter sci-fi story. Because at the time, I think we were we were getting a lot of like darker sci-fi. And this mm-hmm. was like very, it was like kind of a departure at the time. And uh, I hadn't read the book at that point. And so I wasn't familiar with the material. And I kind of bounced off of it a little bit. I think that's something that people tend to still do with this movie and and uh it it, i think part of it has to do with translation too because it's a tough thing to adapt um because it is so eccentric and and like it goes there in so many ways and it could really take you for just a roller coaster that you're not signing up for if you don't know what what you're getting into so i think to surmise that i think like this is kind of a movie that it was kind of made for the book readers in a way but it also seems like book readers people who love the book might not also love the movie. I don't know. I have a lot of thoughts on that as well. Yeah. Uh, so for me, I, I also saw it in theaters when it originally came out and then I have not seen it again <laughs> until now. Um, so I'm trying to look back and remember like, what did I think of this movie? Um, I just remember being kind of confused. I, I think it, <laughs> it, the trailer led me to believe it was going to be like a certain kind of movie. And then I got into it and it, like especially in the second and third acts, it like it, it gets so out of control in so many ways. Um, I don't know. It just it, I, I think by the end I felt completely disinterested, um, and and I remember just walking away disappointed and going like, yeah, I wanted like I wanted to like this movie more, but I just couldn't get there. 
Um, this time around, I felt like I was a lot more invested. I had the book behind me, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? I was able to understand what was going on. Um, I, whenever they would like approach the big concepts of the book, I, I already knew what they were getting into, but I still bounced off of it pretty hard. And, and, and especially in the second and third acts again, I, I think that's where the movie really struggles. Um, and you know, I have lots of little critiques throughout, which I'll talk about, but, um, you know, in general, there is good stuff here. You know, it mm-hmm. is an awesome cast. It, it's a lot of, you know, they're having a good time. Um, Sam Rockwell is just showboating throughout and he's hilarious. <laughs> um, you know, a lot of people that I just really enjoy, you know, their filmmaking and, and I think they're doing, they're doing pretty good here. Um, Martin Freeman is the one standout as someone who I normally really, really like his work, but here I, I, I don't really like this version. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, and it part just, of me thinks that's like character based. Like, I think they wanted him to sort of be just like. Blah. I think they wanted him to be his character from the uh, from the original Office show. No, because he's he's not even because in the in the original Office he's like kind of sharp and he's got he's witty. It he's felt quick. more like he was playing Ricky Gervais a lot of times when yeah. he was mm. when the way that he would say things and do stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I guess I meant that like his humor was very. It seemed to be a lot of like. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of slapstick. Um, but then also just like cringe humor and that, that reminded me of like the original The Office. Like, Mm -hmm. so there was a lot of cringe humor and then a lot of slapstick and not enough of the like, like razor sharp dry wit of the book. Mm -hmm. Like, I felt like that really did not translate to the screen in the way that I wanted it to. Like, I wanted that to be the, the tone and for that to lead the humor. And instead that felt like an afterthought. And instead we were doing a lot of slapstick. Yeah, I have a lot that I think can point to that from all my research that I've done. Um, a lot of book fans feel like some of the bite of the British, like dry British wit was taken out of this because uh, it was an American production. You know, mm-hmm. there were there were definitely British like creators involved, but it was an American production. And like some of the some of the notes that you're going to get from an American production house or, or like studio is going to be different uh, than one from a British. And uh, I think there was an attempt to make the very purest uh Douglas Adams story they could because they really this was all based off of a screenplay by Douglas Adams yeah and it and they tried to keep everything as much as possible based to his notes and his his script that he turned in very very close to his when he when he passed away so I I read a little bit about that I I don't I, you might be overselling it a little bit too much because <laughs> the the stuff that I saw was that it was based off of a draft and they said like whenever possible they would use what was in the draft but like what does that mean exactly um, I, I don't know I mean it's it's not it's not unlike uh, Douglas Adams to have an incomplete idea for something written down and then just go with it but, I mean. That's one of the things that you see in his sketch writing is he would he would be missing deadlines all the time just because he was trying to yeah. he would do whatever he wanted to do at that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah. I can fully believe that he had a and I'm using air quotes because this is an audio situation, uh, <laughs> a, a script where it was mostly just his book, but then like reformatted to be, you know, for video. And mm-hmm. they had to kind of work through that and go, uh eh, that's not going to work in, in a video format. 
So uh, one of the executive producers, Robbie Stamp, said in a statement in an interview that the script we shot was very much based on the last draft that Douglas wrote. All the substantive new ideas in the movie are brand new Douglas ideas written especially for the movie by him. Douglas was always up for reinventing Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in each of its different incarnations, and he knew that working harder on some character development and some of the key relationships was an integral part of turning... Uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy into a movie. Sure. That sounds like someone who's trying to cover their ass, but <laughs> uh, I, I don't know how much I believe that. He, he He's saying based on, too, so I think he's giving himself a lot of wiggle room. Um, I, don't, I don't know, man. This feels Americanized to me. This feels like, like a studio being afraid that the dry wit wouldn't carry it for an American audience, and they needed to, to kind of fundamentally change like the story engine behind it. <laughs> I do think it's interesting to think like they were, I, I think there, like I said, I think there was an attempt made to try to make the purest version of what he would have wanted for a film with liberties taken, obviously, because it wasn't a finalized script or anything like that. And, you know, it's it, at the end, it's dedicated to him, of course, because yeah. like it was all like it was all a dream project to, to be created. Agreed. It's definitely the Americanized version. And that's the that's the main complaint. It is weird that it, it, I mean, it came out after he died. He'd been trying to get it made for many years, for decades. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder a little bit of like the reason this was able to be released is because he was no longer around to say this. I don't want to be a part of this anymore. Maybe I, I, I have a, I, I have a bunch of stuff about this specifically that I'm going to read with like the there's pre-production stuff and development that I have okay. a ton about. So if we want to talk about like like give me some more general thoughts and then we'll move into Garth Jennings, the director, and then talk more about the development. Go ahead, Tyler. Uh, yeah, I mean, things you liked, let's see what, what, what stuff did you like? I, I mean, obviously I liked all the, all the big concept ideas that, that were in the book things, you know, like the, um, improbability drive and the whole scene with the whale, um, which is still one of, in my mind, one of the greatest little just vignettes ever written, um, it's so absurd. Right? It's, it's yeah. amazing. But, and it tells, it's just great. Uh, if you haven't read it, you got to go read that whole thing. Yeah. I, you know, it, I just interrupt for a second. I was thinking about how, like, it's a metaphor for all of us, right? Like, we're all just a whale yeah, who has suddenly sprung into existence and is plummeting to our death. And we don't even know it. And we don't even know why we're here. And by the time we start to figure anything out, we die. Yeah. So, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> or it's just, uh, yeah, just going off of that, the... The idea of uh, innocence and, you know, like you come into this world and it's like, oh, this is all great. This is all new. I, I can't wait to learn more about it. And then the world literally hits you. Yeah. Right. You don't like know the danger. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, and and just I love I love that his voice kind of ran through it um, and, and you did get to hear his voice. And the fact that his friend Stephen Fry was, you know, the narrator, I think that clinched it for me, at least. Um, and, um, I, I don't know. I, I loved in the books, you're supposed to love, you're supposed to follow forward and kind of like, um, Zephod, Zephod, um, even though he's always messing up and doing stupid stuff. But honestly, in this movie, I enjoyed Ford the most. Uh, I just felt mm -hmm. like his character was there and mm -hmm. had a reason to be there and, and they kind of put him in in the situation perfectly. So I liked those. I liked that yeah. this character I didn't really care for in the book was more accessible in, in the movie. 
I have like some rewrite uh, opinions that I'll get into. I'll, I'll save them more for towards the end once we, <laughs> we talk about what was actually in the movie. But yeah, the, the mm. Ford stuff I felt like had a lot of potential and I wish they'd done more with it. I'll just say yeah, that. I agree. Um, and it, so for me, g- good stuff. Uh, I, I thought the movie had a sort of B sci-fi movie vibe that when I originally saw it, I wasn't into. But this time around, I actually, it was kind of working for me. I was like, I can see that they're going like, we don't have the biggest budget in the world, although this they felt like they spent money on this movie. Mm-hmm. They leaned into sort of like Doctor Who level sci-fi yeah, effects. 100%. And, yeah. and um, because of that, uh, I don't know, like I wanted to like a lot of the effects more than I did. Uh, but in general, I enjoyed them. And um, the Vogons in particular standouts, I think, with their practical effects, the... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm awesome suits they were wearing the, the the design of them i thought was really engaging so uh i really liked that um and yeah i mean just they they really went there with a lot of the ideas they swung for the fences they tried to capture a lot of the massive ideas from douglas adams and actually put it on screen which is a very difficult thing to do um and and sometimes it works <laughs> yeah I- I was honestly, I, I had forgotten about the opening where they're pulling out from Earth, from, you know, Ford and Arthur, and they're coming all the way out. I felt like that was such a such a unique way of showing how big you, the whole situation is. Yeah. And I I loved that part. I agree with you guys. A lot of the, I think a lot of the best things about this are, for one, I've already said the cast is insane. Like, like just to, just to get this like level of talent basically across the board for even the minor characters uh, is, is I, it's just like, I would make this movie with that cast too. You know what I mean? I, I don't <laughs> care who game, you are. Man. You know what I mean? So, yeah. You wouldn't be able to afford them now though. I bet they're a lot more expensive than they exactly. were. Exactly. <laughs> These are all people who are just about to just like completely explode. Their careers were about to explode. Um, I really liked, so yeah, you talked about the practical effects of the Vogons and like, that's, I was like doing some looking into it. It's Jim Henson company. So mm. like, that's like the, who you're going to go to if you wanted practical effects in, in a movie like this. And I was also looking into some, some critics of the time, like this wasn't the popular thing to do at this point. Like it's come back into fashion to do practical effects. This was the period of time where George Lucas was spending all of his money on, on creating like the craziest CGI fest you could imagine. Right. And, and like some of those other movies were leaning heavily into like, look what we can do with, with visual effects at this point. Um, and so this isn't the norm of the time. And, and this sort of movie isn't the norm for audiences of the time. I kind of hinted at that earlier. Like this isn't, this isn't the fair that people are used to watching. So it's kind of just a big swing in general to even try to create this. And then you add on the fact that like touchstone is the, it's kind of a branch of Disney that's it's like their adult content more they're more adult films uh it's that's that studio so it's it's disney making this movie too so you have to think about that um and there's there's a lot of things like the uh a lot of creative decisions like the set design is insane uh all of that i think a lot of it looked really good like i i some of it but but like luke was saying some of it did i don't know if it was the way that they were lighting i don't know if it was the that they weren't using quite as cinematic camera work as as you would have normally seen in a movie at this time but it did feel very tv right like it mm-hmm. felt like a tv movie um it felt like doctor who a lot it, it felt like early early revival doctor who like 2006 or whatever that was 2005 yeah Echoes. weirdly inconsistent 
you know like they yeah they, there were um, scenes that were like unbelievable You're unbelievable like, and then they have other scenes that like it, i don't know it felt like they were doing it on a budget <laughs> um, oh yeah you know yeah. and and uh I, one thing I, I i i think even my wife my wife watched part of the movie with me and then she fell asleep so that tells you something mm-hmm. um <laughs> she uh she commented like why are there so many humans and I was like, this is a good point, because every time they show a crowd, it's full of human. Now, they might not be humans, but they look like humans. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And then, like, they go to they go to that one planet and there's a lot of aliens. But, like, then they're there, you know, when when Zaphod is like in front of the crowd or like later with uh, Deep Thought, it's just cra- it's like tons of people who look mm-hmm. completely normal. They look like sports fans. It's very weird. Yeah. We did kind of touch on that too, though, right? Is that is that like Earth was created in the in as a it's a construct of everything else around in the universe, right? Like it's a created world, so humans are based off of everything else in the universe. So maybe this like bipedal yeah. bodies that are like humanoid are the norm, but yeah, that's kind of obviously giving them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, and and you know we we don't get our we don't get my sentient shade of blue that I desperately wanted. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So Where we is don't that get, at? You know, we don't get a lot of the cooler stuff from the from the if book. If they just put like a, a just an entirely blue screen, would that have made you happy and they're like it just spoke? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would be cool, right? I I wanted to say the guide. Some of the stuff with the guide I thought was oh, yeah. really cool. A lot of the animation and the the, yeah. the little side things that we got with that were, were really fun yeah it was a good way to get a lot of uh his voice in there a lot of douglas addison's voice like directly in through stephen fry did you see the deleted scene that they took out from i saw the i saw the scene at the end of the in the credits is yeah. that what you're talking about no i think he, this sounds like something on the blu-ray oh no i haven't uh, seen that. i have no idea where else it would be um but it's the it's the um the whole part uh talking about how god does and does not exist and the proof is in that in the fish that goes in your ear the babble fish um and basically it it's this whole thing and it's from the book too i I, i'm like 90 Mm -hmm. percent sure where you know it's the the babble fish proves that god exists and because god says i you know i can't be proven to exist he then realized that it proves that he exists so he just disappears and i Mm -hmm. like i i was so uh, I was, I was kind of pissed that they took that out because it's such a fun piece of writing, right? And it's and it's yeah. directly from the books, so like, so it made sense to have it in. But I'm I'm guessing audiences, focus groups, somebody was like, no, it's too offensive, so we don't yeah. want it in there. But it's like that's the it, fun of this book, though. Yeah, man. it did feel like that, and that underpins one of my points too, is that it's like this movie felt watered down in a way yeah. and, and, tr- and like it really wanted to make it more accessible to a wider audience. Um, and a lot of the more like troubling ideas from the book um, mm-hmm. were, were, were either presented in a way that was like a lot less challenging to the audience member or, or just completely omitted or rewritten. Right. Mm-hmm. Luke, you kind of mentioned this earlier, but budget is something I wanted to talk about too. Yeah. With uh, This is a weird, this is an anomaly for, like 2021 at this point um this is a mid mid budget sci-fi film and that this just isn't the case anymore there's indie sci-fi and there's massive blockbuster sci-fi in this in this day and age and this is a film that's very much in the it's like 50 million dollars it costs to make it ended up making like 100 million dollars so it made it you know it made good money Hmm. um but this what does this movie look like created today is it Mm. you know the massive the massive blockbuster sci-fi or is it the indie sci-fi because it's it's in this sliver where it's like it's just enough of a budget to do something big but like you said there are times where you're like 
this could have been more cinematic. Like this could have been more visually interesting. You like, get you like, get a Edgar Wright or a James Gunn behind this, and uh, I'll tell you, it looks a lot different. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think if they if the studio can be sold on doing the whole series, then it's a it's big budget, and they're yeah. gonna. And that's the other thing too, right? Is like it's mid budget, and it doesn't really try to set up the the like the continuing story. Like of course they did the line at the end about the restaurant at the end of the world or whatever sure. the end of the universe. In the universe. But but it does feel like it's just like it was made to be self-contained. There's no you you don't walk away from this thinking like they're going to make another one. Like no. I you know what I it's funny because I actually thought kind of the opposite uh, when I just rewatched it, where mm-hmm. there's a few storylines that they don't tie up, you know, in in a bow. And and I was like, oh, I wonder if they left those loose because they can help kind of branch to the yeah. next movie i'm sure they like, hoped right like yeah. they hoped but i don't feel yeah. like they if it was a runaway it. if it's a runaway hit you always want to leave yourself open <laughs> for sure yeah. potentials uh you know follow-ups that makes sense uh so we got to get into this this filmmaker because i honestly yeah. know nothing about him so i'm really curious like, yeah who is this guy Okay, Garth Jennings is an English film director, screenwriter, producer, actor, and writer. Films he has directed include The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Son of Rambo, spelled Rambo, like R-A-M-B-O-W, and Sing. Uh, Sing, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's like an animated kids movie. Pigs Uh, pigs dancing and singing, man. Yeah, yeah, I haven't seen it, but I was looking into it, and it was a $75 million budget, and it made $634 million. Dang. So... They're making a sequel to that one. Um, okay. He's he's currently working on the sequel to Sing 2, but he has kind of uh, interesting beginnings. He co-founded the production company Hammer and Tongs alongside Dominic Lung and Nick Goldsmith. Uh, the production company was primarily responsible for directing and writing music videos. One of their music videos for Radiohead's Lotus Flower earned them a Grammy nom- a Grammy Award nomination. Love that song and that video, man. I didn't realize that they that they had done that. That's yeah. So, so that's cool. that's Garth Jennings, director of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, that directed that. Nice. So many big directors get started in music videos. That's something that we've oh, yeah. talked about. Yeah. You know, in the yeah, past. I think it's a. I know for a fact, like I know people who work in music videos, and like it's you get to it's make like a short a, film, right? Exactly, it's a yeah. short film. You get to be very creative with it, very experimental. Um, you get to do really cool stuff. And then and then because it's sort of an ad, some of the times the studios are willing to shell out like a lot of money for these productions. So yeah. they can be pretty massive, especially like before. I think music videos are kind of starting to they're they're It's a different thing now. Like they're it's, on it's YouTube, YouTube and they're viral based, videos. Yeah. yeah, it's like viral videos. And I mean, we're, we're seeing that right now with Lil Nas X. Lil Nas, yeah. Yeah. And like <laughs> that, like that video is blowing up the yeah. world right now. Like it's the biggest video in the world. And like. That's that's music videos for you right now. I guess I'm not cool. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! So I was listening to your Gary Gygax episode, and you were talking about the Satanic Panic and this and the part two, yeah. and it's it's like happening right now about this music video. Like people oh, really? are losing their minds and saying that like he is like luring kids to Satan and all this stuff. He like lap dances Satan and mm-hmm. like it's like this whole thing, and everybody's like losing their mind about it. And <laughs> yeah. I think it's awesome. I think it's hilarious. So. You guys, so I'm definitely gonna go check this out. He, he is so funny on Twitter too. Like he, the way he responds yeah. to trolls is so good. Anyway, <laughs> so uh, I wanted to talk about. We were talking about pre-production and development. I want to talk a little bit more about that. I'm gonna read some stuff here, and we, I'll stop part of the way through so we can kind of respond to it. Douglas Adams had been approached by one unnamed producer and separately by ABC during the 1970s to turn the book into a film. But Adams refused both offers as he feared they would turn the work into, quote, Star Wars with jokes. In 1982, Adams signed an option. (laughs) 
1982, Adams signed an option for the film with a group of producers involving Ivan Reitman, Joe Medjic, and Michael C. Gross, and completed three scripts for them. As part of the rewrites, Medjic and Gross offered the idea of bringing in either Bill Murray or Dan Aykroyd to play Ford Prefect. However, Aykroyd separately proposed a different story to Reitman, which led to this project becoming the basis for Ghostbusters. Oh, this left wow. this left Adams flustered about the film's development and making sure there was the necessary commitment to the project. However, the event did serve the idea of making Prefect an American as to better draw in that audience. So yeah, tied to Ghostbusters in that way. I mean, Ivan Reitman <laughs> is the connection there. Like he was yeah. he was writing screenplays for Ivan Reitman to potentially direct or produce in some way. Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd potentially being in the movie. That's nuts, man. That's crazy. And then event, no and then idea. instead of making this, they went and made Ghostbusters. I, I'm I, also noticing and, that Douglas Adams was concerned about what they were going to do with his with his with his work. So, well, and he also wrote three scripts for them. So it's mm-hmm. like you know, it's not like it was like a one and done thing, and they yeah. figured it out, and it was we, all perfect, we, tied it with a bow. We do have to mention that um, we talked about in our last episode. He is adapting his radio play, I guess, radio comedy for the books. And then there is a TV series that was made. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I haven't seen it. I, I mean, maybe we can if we can find it. Maybe we'll watch some of it for a bonus. Episode I think we should. Yeah, or, we is, should definitely listen to the radio thing at the very. There least. is stuff too from like from the movie where like the the soundtrack for the movie has a lot of stuff from the radio and TV show in it. So like the 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 main theme song from the I believe the radio and the tv show you can hear it throughout so mm-hmm. there's like i feel like the movie was trying to hit all of these potential audiences of like oh i mm-hmm. watched the movie or oh we we know about the radio show or or the book um yeah i think they tried <laughs> yeah i mean that's the thing right and and that's why i said like there is an attempt made here to to like to cater to different sections of the fan base and like people who were fans of the book and they kind of, but then they broadened it and like watered it down. Like we've talked about. Yeah. Um, I've heard re- there's tons of references to like, uh, I was just, there's this list of references from like uh, the TV show and the radio play and all that, mm-hmm. like that are just threaded into this movie. And I'm like so much effort. I also saw that like um, some of, some of Douglas Adams family show up, like his mom's in a scene. Um, oh, wow. Some of his other family are like pit play extras. Um, yeah. But the extra specifically the, um, I guess the robot from Marvin from mm-hmm. the the TV show cameos in the like the queue that they're that they're at on that one oh. planet. He's in the queue at one point that they have to like push through. Nice. Mm-hmm. So I didn't, you know, I I don't know what he looks like. We'll have to, you know, circle back on <laughs> yeah, that at some cool. point. There's but. a lot of weird looking aliens in there. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like the white one that like sort of hissed at them. That was that yeah. one was awesome. I liked the the pinhead. The, yeah. the cushion head with the pins in it. Yeah. I thought that was pretty clever. All right. So continuing here, movement on the film was quiet until around 2001 when director Jay Roach, using the clout he had gained from Austin Power, secured a new deal with Adams and production through Disney. Adams wrote a new script and Roach sought talent like Spike Jones to direct, Hugh Laurie to play Arthur, and Jim Carrey as Zaphod. But then Adams died on May 11th of 2001. Roach brought in Carrie Kirkpatrick to complete the screenplay based on Adam's final draft, submitted just before his death. Kirkpatrick used what notes Adam had left, finding that Adams was willing to go off the book's narrative to adapt to the film. He considered his screenplay something in the spirit that Adams had set out based on the whole of Adam's work. Mm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that's like some more credit to <laughs> Luke's point that it's yeah. potentially just like uh, all hearsay. 
We'll, well, yeah, you know, who <laughs> it knows? was based on it. <laughs> it kind of also, it kind of also is like, I mean, it's super tragic that he passed away, yep. but it also wouldn't, I wouldn't pa- put it past someone in Hollywood to try to push through a brand new screenplay right that he submitted right before his death or you know what i mean something mm. like that to get something i don't know well That's we don't know like how complete... rough it was right like it's a draft right. but like who knows how near completion that thing was mm-hmm. that famous procrastinator douglas adams you know yeah, talk yeah. About. legitimately famous and uh i think it was like a doctor who episode or something that he was supposed to write and put it off so long that they had to like basically improv it live or something it was it was kind of crazy what <laughs> what he was willing to get away with. So, yeah. Um. Even even if they're like, yeah, this is all kind of just made up. I think it's it fits his style <laughs> mm-hmm. a little bit at least. Sometime after Adam's death, Roach decided to drop out of the project, and on recommendation from Spike Jones, one of several directors asked to do the film. Roach turned to director Garth Jennings and producer Nick Goldsmith, collectively known as Hammer and Tongs, to take up the work. Mm. So, Roach. Asked Spike Jones. Spike Jones turned it down. Spike Jones eventually pointed them in the direction of Garth Jennings, who I'm assuming he knew from his work on music videos. Wow. Mm. Nice. I like Spike Jones. I, you know, alternate universe, what could have been. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, through we just read everything from the 70s all the way until the actual production in 2004 and then the release in 2005. Okay. Uh, you know, it was kind of tumultuous. There was things that there was a lot of people's hands that it went through. Obviously, yeah. uh, it seemed like uh, Douglas Adams was trying to keep keep it pretty p- pure to his vision. So, yeah. you know, I, and, it depends and, on what side of the fence you're on here. It's like maybe maybe he did complete like a great script that right before he passed away. Yeah. Or maybe they, you know, took a super rough draft and sort of like added so, so, some stuff in. Because to pile on some more stuff that I didn't love about the film is the... Uh, some of those added scenes were were like where I felt like it was really slowing down the pacing of the story. There's the whole pl- extra planet that they go to that I was like, meh. Like this is yeah. this, this is interesting to see more aliens and interesting to see more of the the universe. But at the same time, it, it wasn't like quite as. Um, there's something about the book when I we talked about it last week that was just so page turning and it was so like brief. It didn't overstay its welcome. It was very concise, and I appreciated it for that. And I think. You know, of course, you want to try to pad it out a little bit for a film, but it just like felt like not really necessary. Yeah, uh, I felt like they were focusing on the wrong things. Um, so I, I, I don't know if we want to get into maybe we should get into some plot summary because I have like meat of the story stuff I want to start talking about. But uh, maybe we should lay it out a little bit for the listener. Sure. Yeah. OK. OK. So the plot here. One Thursday morning, Arthur Dent discovers that his house is to be immediately demolished to make way for a bypass. He tries delaying the bulldozers by lying down in front of them. Ford Prefect, a friend of Arthur's, convinces him to go to a pub with him. Over several pints of beer, Ford explains that he is an alien from the vicinity of Beetlejuice and a journalist working on The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, a universal guidebook. Ford warns that the Earth is to be demolished later that day by a race called Vogons to make way for a hyperspace bypass. As the Vogon fleet arrives in orbit to destroy Earth, Ford rescues Arthur by stowing aboard one of the Vogon ships. The pair are shortly discovered and thrown out an airlock, only to be picked up by the starship Heart of Gold. They find Ford's cousin, Zaphod Beetlebrox, the newly elected president of the galaxy. He has stolen the ship along with Trisha Trillian McMillan, an Earth woman whom Arthur had met previously, and Marvin the paranoid android, a clinically depressed robot. So what do we think of the, with the beginning of this? Let's start with Tyler. I thought it was good. To be honest, I thought it like, we're not here to hang out on Earth. I want to get 
into all the spacey stuff, right? And like I said before, where they show uh, Ford, you know, giving the thumbs up and and it going out to the Vogons, like the way that it pulls out from Earth, I thought shows so much uh, immensity to just just Earth. And then we keep pulling out further as the movie goes on to see how big the universe is, the galaxy in the universe is. Um, metaphorically, I thought it was a great way of showing like Arthur's worldview is going to expand in, in that moment is, you know, whether he wants it to or not is expanding and pulling out. Um, and then introducing the characters. I thought, I thought the way that they did kind of the the uh, Trillian and Arthur relationship was a little forced, um, but uh, I don't remember there being that much to work off of from the book, so it, it feels almost sitcommy to me. Like, mm-hmm. we're yeah, here. I was I was happy to see more for Trillian to do, and oh, then yeah. as time went on through the story, I was like. But they kind of just did the play, like paint by numbers kind of thing to do with a female character in this role. Like it was, I like Zoe Deschanel in the, in the role. I think she she does a good job. But I, they didn't give her a lot to do. It was really just a relationship. So I have a lot to say about about Trillian. But <laughs> I'm gonna back up first and and talk about the beginning here. Um, I I think this is like some of the strongest stuff in the movie. Um, I think this is where a lot of Douglas Adams' humor is like on full display. Um, the the introduction of the Vogons, it's so stylish, it's so well-crafted. When they get on the ship itself, it looks great. Um, you can just feel like your world exploding along with with his. You know, you're like, I can't believe this is all happening. Um, the poetry, I thought, was pretty funny, pretty close to how it goes down in the book. And all the way up through the airlock, getting launched out into space and getting picked up on, on the Heart of Gold. Um, and then and then we get introduced to, to Zaphod and, and uh, Trillian and... I was so excited. I thought they were going to like really lean into these two characters because, um, uh, you know, uh, Sam Rockwell is so hilarious. I was so excited to see him in this over the top role. And he, you know, he shows up on on screen as this like larger than life rock star type character who's so ridiculous. Um, and I really wanted to have fun with that character. And I really got frustrated when it felt like the movie continued to position him into a almost a villainous role like they really didn't want us to like him and i was like no i i want to like him stop trying to make me dislike him god damn it and so much so that they yeah, even say weird. that he's like responsible for blowing up earth essentially through his like you know uh in attention to Nonchalant. detail i guess yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and then and then the real and the other reason they're making him out to be a villain is they set him up as a romantic rival um mm-hmm. with trillian and and arthur and um that that was you know so i did a little bit of research into the radio stuff and and into the tv show and it appears that the their romance is a big thing in both of those versions um she is this really sort of romantic lead that he is he's pursuing um but that wasn't much of a thing in the book um i think it's safe to say like instead it's like oh she's this woman that he once hit on at a party and then she left and then that's really it. Like, I don't know. He's it, She's not, like, the love interest who he's, like, pining after throughout. It's not all about them forming some sort of relationship by the end of the book. Um, that is all completely 
added or played up or, or what you whatever you want to call it for this film. Um, and I don't know if they're going off of maybe like that's more of a TV show thing or I was curious if maybe that happens more in later books. I don't know. I haven't read them. Um, but yeah, whatever that that's is. That's another thing is like I, I assume that like you're going to pull from all of his work if you're going to adapt because at this point all the books were out. So you're going to want to do like pull something yeah. in from those other books. But I don't know. It, it didn't really feel it like it just there was felt anything. like they they wanted it for marketing they wanted it for you know selling the movie to executives they wanted to say this is yeah. what the movie is ultimately really about it's about these yeah. t- these two characters who are in love like everybody can understand that right yeah i mean think about hollywood specifically again we're talking about americanized film hollywood mm-hmm. in 2005 like what's going to sell you know, don't make the story too complicated to where we have to, you know, make sure you hold the audience's hand a little bit. This is how executives are thinking about the audience. I feel like make sure people know what's going on, uh, make it a safe template because this is a crazy world that we're dealing with. Make sure it's a template that they're familiar with. And so, like, they kind of tried to throw that on top of a Douglas Adams story. And I yeah. think that kind of like is where, where we're seeing the the transition isn't working as well as we would have hoped. Yeah, I agree. It's it's a. I mean, I'm trying to think back to like 2005 and the and the movies that came out, you know, and and you got movies like Shaun of the Dead and um, Galaxy Quest and all these movies where it, it ultimately ends up being some sort of love story, right? This mm-hmm. big crazy thing is happening, but it's really just a love story, you mm-hmm. know. And and I feel like it's just that's just what they did, and and I I don't appreciate that as much anymore because a I think it's cliche and we can tell different stories and B I I feel like in my writing at least I like to explore other relationships and so the relationship between Arthur and Trillian being you know just basically spaceship roommates that are just hanging basically new girl but in space right Um <laughs> 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 uh, that's what I would love to see is 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 that yeah. um yeah, I'm with you, man. Uh, Zoe Deschanel, you know, she plays this lead well. You know, it doesn't take a lot of convincing for me to, you know, look at her as a romantic lead. It's like, yeah, I get it, you know. But yeah. on the other hand, they don't do a good job of setting up this romance. I never once felt like Arthur and Trillian were somehow meant to be together. And in fact, right. Arthur is kind of gross about her. He is possessive immediately. He gets jealous when he has no right to be. Um, there's so many things about the way he treats her that just rub me the wrong way. And I know it was, you know, 15 years ago and, you know, that's not that long ago. And um, <laughs> I don't know. It just it frustrated me and and I didn't care about it at all. And in fact, I, I kept wanting Trillian to be like, no, fuck you. <laughs> like, I, I, I'm going <laughs> to stick with Zaphod. He's more interesting than you. Like, uh, that's kind of what I wanted her to do, you know, like, but instead they kept mm. trying to make Zaphod seem terrible so that she would be pushed towards Arthur. And I don't know. It was just it was just frustrating. The scene at the end with Arthur, like we're jumping away ahead a little bit here, but the the scene at the end where he's got like the thing on his head and the, the mice are like interrogating him mm-hmm. and he's like, I, you know, realize or I think that's the scene where he's like, I've realized, you know, what's important and who yeah, I love and did all this stuff. I, I was like, holy shit, like that, that came out of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. You're the one. Yeah. No, <laughs> yeah right. Like no setup. She's not that interested in you. There was like one scene near a shower that was like maybe trying to do something that was And all he was doing was apologizing weird. for being yeah. a dick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like that's not love. That's not a setup for like the true love situation. Yeah. She, she yeah. even has a if, moment with the gun and she's like. I, I may have messed it up with the only man who actually understands me. I'm like, exactly, what the yeah, fuck that was are you another... talking about? Who, whatever gave you the impression that he understands you at all? 
Right. He didn't want to go to Madagascar with you. He actively doesn't get you. Like, you want to go off and do shit. He doesn't want to do that yeah. stuff. You guys disagree fully. At the end, they're like, oh, no, now he does want to go out and do stuff. So he yeah. does understand her. I'm like, that's not that's not enough. Trillian looks yeah. like she's having the most fun in the movie the first time we meet mm-hmm. her. And she's wearing Zaphod's, like, <laughs> undergarments. She yep. looks like she's having a great time. And honestly, it's it's kind of fucked up that Arthur comes along and screws it up for her. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Arthur's the villain the whole time. It's a Karate Kid situation. You better read some more plot, man. We're all over the place. All right, here we go. Zaphod seeks the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything to match with the disappointing answer given by the supercomputer Deep Thought 42. He believes that the answer lies on the planet Magrathia, only accessible using the heart of gold's improbability drive through trial and error. On one attempt, they arrive at Viltvottle 6, where Zaphod's opponent, Huma Kavula, resides. Kavula offers the coordinates for Magrathia in exchange for Zaphod recovering the point of U-Gun, a gun created by Deep Thought that makes anyone it blasts temporarily see things from the same perspective as the person that fired the gun at them. Trillian is, is captured by the Vogons as they depart and the three mount of rescue effort on the Vogon homeworld. Before her rescue, Trillian learns that Zaphod gave the order for the destruction of Earth, thinking that the Vogon, with the permission form, just wanted his autograph. So what did you, how did you think they handled that, Tyler? Um, I don't remember any of that from the book. Like, Which which were we talking about? Well, like, basically the, the whole process of him signing away Earth. Right, yeah. I don't remember any of book. that. So, right, <laughs> like, I'm pretty confident that does not happen. At least not in that way. No, that was added. I don't think any of the, none of this is in the book. Yeah. With I, uh, I, I really him. think they're trying to sell Zaphod as being just a big fuck up, so that we don't like him. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I'm trying to think of like one part of this whole middle act that I really liked, and I think there's a reason why your wife fell asleep. Yep. <laughs> I I'll give him the benefit of the doubt that I think the idea behind a point of view gun is fun and clever and interesting. Uh, the execution that we see isn't that interesting. It kind of, and it's weird that it's it's also like seated in this idea that like women made it because men yeah. can't understand. Right. Like, that was all weird, obviously. Uh, and like wi- it doesn't affect women because they because they what understand all already like perspectives. Yeah, I don't. I couldn't follow it. <laughs> I I do think that that's from a later book, actually. Okay, uh, it does oh, feel right. kind of like don't... a Douglas Adams thing. <laughs> it felt like something he might have written. <laughs> I think there are a lot of a lot of threads that they pulled into this story, uh, probably because one, they knew they're probably not getting in, getting another movie, and two, you know, it just works to add to the plot of this whole thing. And I and I think that if I remember correctly, it is from one of the books. I could sense. be making that up, though. It it does, yeah. in my opinion, if it's not from the book, it v- was very well written to sound like something that Douglas Adams would create. It's clever. Like it, it's one of those things that, like, that's just a clever invention. It sounds like something out of a Monty Python sketch too, which is kind of a Douglas yes. Adams style. That's all style Douglas humor. Adams. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah. I did like the scene where you know they're they're jumping into these turbines, into these portals, right, and everybody else has jumped through. And Arthur's like, he's getting ready to jump through and he's, he's psyching himself up and then he runs through and they, you know, they, they cut to the top uh, perspective and it shows him run and, you know, fall through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that, I think that's on Magrathia too. Like that, that hasn't even happened in the section we've talked about yet. Well, but, oh, with like, her. Yeah. I think that it kind of, we're, 
we're basically getting ahead of ourselves a little bit because we're getting into the Magrathia stuff, but the, the gun thing also kind of happens at that same time, so I think that's why why we got off. Uh, but, okay. um, yeah, if, if you want to just focus on the middle section, that's more like uh, when we meet um, John Malkovich and the, the like, sneezing right. religion people. Um, and, and the, the first firefight where all the lasers, I mean, they're, they're, you know, we later learned it's because they're like the most inaccurate marksmen in the universe or something. And, um, the Vogons are sort of pursuing them throughout in a way that wasn't in the novel. I did like, um, and maybe this is just me reading a little bit too much into it because Lovecraft is my, one of my favorite authors, but the whole, the whole sneezing and, you know, God is, is this creator that just sneezed us into existence that feels very much like a parody of Lovecraft because you have the Lovecraftian mythos where we are uh, all just all of creation and the universe is a dream for the great elder God, great old one, whatever um, Azathoth, I think. And, and we're all just in his dream. And as soon as he wakes up, we all stop existing Right, like that's what we're all waiting for—is for the great Azathoth to wake up. Okay. Uh, so I felt like this was a direct parody of that, in in my opinion, of the you know the sneezing created the universe, and now we're just waiting for the tissue to wipe us away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just love the the insignificance, right? Like the idea that like we're just such an afterthought. The entire all of existence yeah. is such an afterthought in these gods' perspectives. It, yeah. So another thing that happens in this section is uh, Zaphod gets his like other head removed from his neck, mm-hmm. which first off, like I, I wasn't a big fan of that effect. I thought it always looked kind of bad whenever it happened. It was pretty janky. Um, the head flip thing. Yeah. yeah it was weird. But like I get that they were trying to not go for just who oh, he has a second head on his shoulders like it would have been according to the book. I, it was an interesting idea. Just the execution wasn't quite there. But um, it, to me, Zaphod also became a really strange character after that happened. And I think they were trying sure. to do something with it about like it like took out part of his personality, and then he kept having to get this like lemony thing on his head, which wasn't funny, and it was very weird. We got something like that in the book, right? Like there's something about like he, there's a change in perspective for him in the book as well. At some point, like he, I don't remember it being this dramatic where he just because he kind of he kind of becomes a weird doofus for the rest of the movie in a way that <laughs> even more extreme than he was before, it, and inconsistently as inconsistently. well. Like when they need him to be focused, I guess the. The uh, cheat is, oh, maybe we just didn't see them juice him up. Yeah. But like he, if he needs to be more prevalent in what's going on, he just is. And when they need that break in humor. I'm, I swear they were telling Sam Walkrow to like dial back the charisma because they're going to make people <laughs> like him too much. Yeah. I'm going to read another section here. Okay. The group escapes the Vogons, followed by Galactic Vice President Questular Rontok and the Vogons. They arrive at Magrathia, but trigger its automated missile defense system. Arthur reactivates the improbability drive to transform the missiles into a bowl of petunias and a whale, allowing them to safely land on the planet. Zaphod, Ford, and Trillian enter a portal to arrive at Deep Thought, though though Arthur and Marvin are stranded outside the portal. They learn from Deep Thought that after coming up with the answer 42, its creators had Deep Thought design another computer to come up with the question, that being Earth. They recover the point-of-view gun though Trillian uses it on Zaphod to show him her resentment for his accidental destruction of the Earth. They are captured by unknown entities. Meanwhile, on Magrathia, Arthur is met by Slarty Bartfast, one of the planet's builders. Slarty Bartfast takes Arthur to a pocket dimension inside the planet where he shows that a new version of Earth is near completion. 
Slurdy Bartfast takes Arthur to his recreated home, where inside the others are enjoying a feast provided by the pan-dimensional beings who commissioned Arthur's original Earth and who resemble a pair of mice. With Arthur, who was on Earth up until the last minutes, the mice think they can discover the question by removing his brain. Arthur manages to escape and crush the mice under a teapot. They disappear without a trace. Suddenly, Questular and the Vogons arrive outside the home and open fire. The group takes shelter in a caravan, but Marvin, lev left alone, uses the point-of-view gun to make the entire Vogon force too depressed to continue fighting. The Vogons are taken away while Zaphod reunites with Questular. Arthur decides to explore the galaxy with Ford and Trillian, allowing Slarty Barfast to finalize the new Earth without him. The Heart of Gold crew decides to visit the restaurant at the end of the universe. There we go. That's the rest of it. <laughs> um, this is where, like, a couple of things that really annoyed me. <laughs> and I feel like I'm such a downer in this movie, and I feel bad because I know people are going to listen to this who, who probably really like it. Um, but I feel like the, the, the humor of the book is always smart. It's never dumb. And mm. what makes it funny is the absurdity that's being presented to you as being very like serious and it and and but what's being described is so absurd um but here it's like they lean into it being dumb and like they know it's dumb we know it's dumb and they like show it as dumb and it, it feels it really frustrates me in that way because it's like it doesn't believe in itself enough um and, and I, you know there's a few examples of that but the one that really one that really sticks out to me is the amazing look of the planet builder, uh, the the workshop, right, where we see them building planets, and there's all these like cool like planets still in process, and like giant sections of, of planets, and then they arrive, and they and there's a man on a fucking ladder painting a wall, painting a canyon with a, a, by hand. <laughs> it's so paint. stupid. Like no, it is like so stupid. And, and so that's what I mean. It's like they're like the idea to them, they can't even take it seriously. They have to make it dumb. Um, and, you know, he arrives at his house and there's like people planting flowers by hand with shovels in his garden. And like we just saw them raise a fucking mountain out of the ice like a minute ago as they were coming in. Like we saw them do all these other things and like it just makes no sense. And, and I was very frustrated with that that difference. Right. Like the it's like uh, it, it can't take itself seriously enough, which is a weird thing because it's a, it's a comedy, but. I don't and know. it's an absurd comedy. The tone is wrong. Yeah. I thought you were going to go. I, I, so that that didn't bother me quite as much because that's like sort of like at least there's a hint of humor there. I thought you were going to say like the stuff at the end with the Vogons and how they're just like, um, we're here and we're blasting and they're shooting the trailer and they're all running around like that to me felt like so that felt like they ran out of money in the movie. They were, <laughs> they're just like have a bunch of Vogons roll up and we'll be at the house, the set here. And then we'll have like, I don't know, that felt that whole sequence just felt really like lame to me. I was like, wow, this is the climax of the movie, huh? Yeah, because yeah, it doesn't make any sense. How do they get there? Like we're in a we're in a pocket dimension right yeah, now. Yeah, exactly. We're, how are we back on, you know? Yeah, I, exactly. I agree with you. It's it it felt rushed. It felt like, well, this mice aren't interesting enough to be our climax. So, uh, well, and what it, was, do we got? It, it was kind of a nod to the to the police that show up at the end. There's like a police force that Marvin gets mm -hmm. to like the AI of their computer to commit suicide, which is much more mm -hmm. interesting, I think, than than what happens here. But um, I think they were trying to do that, but they just wanted, they just made it the Vogons, even though it didn't make any sense to do that. Right. Um, and I'm not saying that was good, but like, I, I, I'm using that example to point to a larger problem. And I, and I think that's also present with the, like, 
the question and answer stuff with deep thought is something that I it's my favorite part of the entire book, right? Like that reveal of 42 the the -hmm. reveal that earth is actually a supercomputer who's trying to calculate the question is so cool in the book and i felt like had none of the like magic left in it it was it was i don't know it was presented in a really weird way where it like i i can tell you i did not remember this part from seeing it whereas it should have been the most memorable part of the movie there's i think there's a pacing problem with a lot of it there's not a lot of room for some of the jokes and some of the absurdity and really interesting logical uh, funniness that goes into the writing. You know, you read it at a certain pace. And in the movie, like when they present Deep Thought and and it's like, hey, we want to know. We want to know what the answer is. And they just kind of graze over it real fast. And then, and then it's like, oh, it's 42. And then they spend more time showing like the sports fans being disappointed in rather than latching onto that, that moment of hilarity where you go, shit, they did, they did ask for the answer, but they Mm -hmm. never asked the question. They never asked a question like, Mm -hmm. and that's the whole point of that. And the, the absurdity of like, we spend so much time looking for the answer. We're, we're too busy wondering what the question is. Yeah. There's something profound and philosophical about this that we touched on in our last episode, but the idea that Earth itself is a is an engine to discover the ultimate question of existence, I think right. that's really cool in a meta way, like like in a philosophical way, and I don't get any of that from the movie. Like it doesn't seem interested in 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 asking the audience to consider this. Um, right. It was more plot device. Yeah. And and I think you're right on with the fact that like. If you take you present the 42 thing as a as like full on serious and it's funny because it's absurd, but you put you present it as full on serious. You don't say like have everybody's reaction shots and everything like that. You just you just like linger on the shot of deep thought and you say like the answer is 42 and then let people think about the fact that like what the fuck is going on here? (laughs) And instead, like you said, it kind of turns into like the dumbed down version where it's like almost slapstick. It's almost like philosophers. Like, I feel like they're actually really important in making us think of the philosophical question a little bit more before we get the reveal. Um, Mm -hmm. And because they're omitted, it happens. It happens so fast. Like so fast. You don't really even, you don't even really understand what the import of, of having this thing answered all of a sudden is like, you don't care. It's, it's like the setup is all so, I know this is jumping away from what we're talking about right now, but the the mice dying and like them being pan-dimensional beings and like that defeating them, like just squashing them, sort of defeating them, like that was the end. Yeah. Like that 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 it doesn't make any lame. sense because that was all like <laughs> set up. Like we'd been experimenting on on mice and everything, and like we they were that was on purpose. We weren't actually killing them necessarily. Yeah. So uh, it was just weird for them to just get squashed, and then that's the end of the pan-dimensional, like all-powerful beings. Yeah, it yeah. didn't make any sense. And I agree with Tyler when you said, like, it seemed like they thought that the t- the mice weren't very interesting, so let's just go on to something else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably. Um, and going back to what I was saying earlier about that moment at the portal, because that was probably the moment that stuck with me the most after watching this uh, again. Outside of that zoom out, so well done. Um, but when they're when you're the saying port- the zoom out, you're talking about like the sort of like it's like staggered and it's like yeah 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 and it's yeah and it keeps going and it shows yeah. the immensity of one ship and then shows how small that ship is in comparison yeah very but, cool um 
at the portal, everybody else has jumped in, right? And you watch as their bodies, like, get chopped up and, like, they're teleported to some other dimension or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I felt like they did a really good job of taking a minute and really showing Arthur come to grips with the idea that he is about to die. And he he has no other option. What is he going to do? He's stuck on this planet, and everybody else is gone. He, he, there's no way out. And so it's freeze to death or jump through this portal, and, and you watch this whole range of, of like, anger and, and fear and, and then, you know, getting the courage up, and then he books it. And I absolutely <laughs> love that moment, and I feel like it's probably one of the few times that you get the proper pacing for this character going through something. Well, they've set him, they've set him up to be, you know, uh, a hesitant man <laughs> who's, who's, yeah. who's uh, reluctance to live his life to the fullest has, has cost him. And that's a, a moment where it's cost him again. And he's faced with like literally dying because of it, because of his reluctance to, to just jump in, which again sure. proves he's not the right person. <laughs> for <laughs> Truly, <trying, but>, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I, it's a good scene. So, I like him looking out at the, the two sunset, which is something uh, from the book, which I thought translated well. I, and we haven't touched much on Marvin who who's been with him. And I love Alan Rickman. And of course, hearing his voice is a treat, but, I the, this version of Marvin like wasn't quite as good as the book version of Marvin. I don't. Like, I just think underutilized. Like I, yeah. I thought that what, the stuff he did was fine, but I just think that they took a lot of it out from the book, and it didn't feel like there was a lot going on. Yeah, I don't know, yeah, man. Agreed completely. I, I wish I could go through and like I, I would like to see like a list of all of like what does Marvin actually say in the book, and like what does he actually say in the movie? Because mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like it feels like maybe there's a forty percent overlap, and and a lot of mm. it was like invented stuff. Um, that wasn't quite as funny as the shit he was saying in the book. And, <laughs> um, so again, it felt like there were times where they were unnecessarily changing things. Like just use the the stuff from the book because it's really funny. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, there's a few things I wanted to rattle off for you guys before we started to wrap up okay. here. The um, I, I wanted to touch on like how I, I actually kind of liked some of the stuff they did with the improbability drive. I think they went... I think they took big swings with that. And that's something that's like very creative and difficult to sort of be like, let's just create randomness on screen. And like the, the section where they were turned into like yarn yeah. people and he like puked up the yarn and cool. like pulls and like the transition from like just the camera moving and him, his hands being yarn. And then he pulls it out of his mouth and he's no longer yarn, but he's pulling. It. I just thought that was awesome. Yeah. Um, some of the, some of the like lingering effects with like the flowers when they all turn to flowers and like they're like flowers are falling off of them. Uh, and the couch is the obvious first one mm-hmm. that's like kind of funny. Uh, the, those are fun. I, I was reading that um, in the radio series, Belgium is like the the most unspeakably rude word that can be said in the entire <laughs> universe. And so like that's why it kept popping up in the movie. Mm. And I thought that that like I just when I read that, I was like, OK, that explains a lot because they kept saying Belgium as if it was like an insult or something. So I just thought that was worth bringing Man, up as well. I didn't even well. catch that. They just kept saying it. I was like, why are they talking about Belgium? Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting thing to include in this movie and not explain. Which, by the way, uh, they never explained the towel thing. And I feel like it's kind of an open question for people who who aren't in the who know. Like, the if you didn't yeah. read the book or anything and you know nothing and you just went and saw this movie, 
You're like, why? You're like, why, why do they do, have the why towel? Why do they have towels? <laughs> yeah, like I, I was like, how? Why? It's just a weird quirk to the movie, is what people think. I how guess. did they not explain it? I don't know. It's very weird. Like yeah. I thought they were going to give us a little like section of the guide, doing their little discussion, and they were going to talk about the towel. Mm-hmm. That's in the book. Yeah, they didn't do it. Ford. Yeah. I mean, he had ample chance to explain to Arthur, like, always have your towel. Never go without. It's the most important thing you can have. Yeah. And at least give one or two reasons. And instead, he yeah. just kind of says, make sure you have your towel, and then never explains it. And then never talks about <laughs> it again. Very weird. Um, I want to suggest some potential, like, wh- what I, I wish they had focused on instead of what they did. Um, I, I and, and it, Tyler, I think you, you picked up on some similar things. I really wanted Ford and Arthur's relationship to take front and center in this version of the story. I wanted to know more about them. I feel like Ford is very interesting early in the film and then doesn't have yeah. much to do at all by the end and kind of gets forgotten. And I would have much yep. rather see those two characters develop a friendship and let Trillian and Zaphod be their weird-ass selves and, and stay together. Like I, I thought that would have been subversive and interesting to be like, no, she realized that's, you know, Arthur is not the kind of person I want to be with. I want to be with someone like this and let that be. Um, and I think if just like that little change and, and you focus and you do something surprising instead of something that is like incredibly safe, you know, like incredibly Hollywood. Um, and I, I understand why that didn't happen. <laughs> um, but I, it just I was frustrated because I, it feels like there's such a like you could do a lot more and still change it, but change it in a way that's interesting. Um, and I mm. wish they had done. I don't know. What do you guys think? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, we talked about that earlier. I kind of laid my soul bare. I'm I'm fine without having Arthur and Trillium be together, or it doesn't make sense to me at all. So I agree with you. Yeah, having him and Ford, like I wanted to see more Ford. I think what pulled what pulled me into Ford was most F's performance mm-hmm. too. I think like I wanted more of Ford in the story because, like you said early on, I got attached to him more than Arthur, more than you know any of the other characters really going forward. Um, and then, yeah, he started to take weird paths kind of with like, I've been here before on different planets and like, that's really all he was there for is just to bring up guide stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think most F killed it as like, like just being like charismatic. Like I wanted more and the, the, uh, honestly, like the towel thing worked for me. Not, not the fact that they didn't talk about it, but like just seeing him with the towel and how serious he was about the towel. Yeah. Visually seeing that would play pretty funny for me for in a lot of situations, those things that were like literally slap sticking them in the face slapping mm-hmm. them in the face he like sticks the towel out to block yeah. it and stuff like that's a practical reason to have a towel with you like that specific scenario. <laughs> that's a good point he, he demonstrates some good reasons but you touched on the slap things and i, I just got to say like that sort of embodies the humor i didn't like in this movie while it yeah. was it was kind of funny um it's it's an example of an idea that someone came up with they're like whenever you have an idea you get slapped okay but then it's not. There's no second part to that idea. There's no ex. Well, yeah. I think we, we, we never. There, f- I think there's an implied second part. What a is little it? Bit. The alien, the Vogons, are all like very bureaucratic, and they live on a planet where th- whenever anytime they have a thought, they're slapped in the face. So like they're being trained by these like slapping things okay. to not have free thoughts through. I the, don't think that's in the movie, but I can see where you might 
where, where you can read between the lines of that. Yeah. yeah. I think that's great, actually. I had not thought about yeah, that Yeah, I like that, all. but they should, have, they should have made that connection more clear, I think, if that's yeah, what they were going for. Yeah, it takes for. two seconds to do a, a guide entry, Exactly. Right? You know, the slapsticks were created by Vorgon, like, not yeah, hard to To discourage, do. you know, free thinking or something. Yeah, that would have been funny. And, like, I, that's what I wanted. I wanted, like, because every time there's, like, a weird idea that it seems absurd and, and like, like, this is just complete goofiness in the book he always follows it up with something that makes it seem somehow very real and you're like oh yeah, i right. guess i buy that this is a thing like the mice you're <laughs> like i guess i believe that they could be these extra dimensional beings because he just did such a good job of laying it out in a way that seems plausible and um yeah. they just didn't do enough of that work in this movie instead they just leaned into it yeah. being ridiculous all right let's hear i want to hear some more of your of your uh your notes for the for the screenplay, like things you would have liked to have seen changed. I want more of the philosophical, logical um, comedy and absurdity that flows throughout the book, right? Um, mm -hmm. There are things that I really wish we could see from the rest of the series in in uh, this movie. If not, if they had really, I guess what I'm saying is I, I wish that they had made sequels so that we could have seen some of the other yeah. stuff. Like there's a moment in the series where Zaphod gets thrown into a machine that shows you how it shows you the entirety of the universe. It shows you how big it is all in one instant. And it's used to uh, basic it, it's used as punishment because nobody can understand it. And it's so mm -hmm. big. It's so massive. This constant thing that they say throughout the series that um, whenever you, whenever you're, uh, shown this you basically go insane right another fun lovecraftian thing in my head but uh, zaphod is thrown into it they flip the switch and then he walks out and he's fine he's the exact same zaphod as before and they're like what mm -hmm. how how is this possible and he's like well i just found out i'm the center of the universe and like the machine basically showed him how massive and big the universe is but then like shows the caveat that he is the most important person in the universe. And so he goes through this whole book with this, this stupid confidence about how he is the center of the universe. And then someone at the end of the book is like, no, I, I fixed the machine so that it wouldn't kill you. And that's the only way that you could walk out <laughs> of that machine. Not awesome. dead. See, I, I'm, I'm taking from this project that we've done the, the, the book and the movie. What I'm taking away is that I'm going to, I'm going to continue reading on for sure. I, I have to read more of the series. Yeah. It's so good. And that's, that's I wouldn't necessarily change anything about the movie. I would have just wanted to see more. Mm -hmm. I would if we're if we're saying things we would change. I'd like to take scissors to like a middle chunk of the mm -hmm. movie, uh, <laughs> just cut out the some of the added yeah. stuff. Just felt like I said it. Just felt like it bloated it a little bit. Yeah. Mm. I, I think there's a lot here that that works, but a lot more in my opinion that didn't work. Um, I think this is pretty safe to say. Uh, I, I mean, do we need to take our vote? I guess just for posterity. <laughs> we'll do it for yeah for our official vote. Yeah. Here. Okay. So let's let's do that real quick. <laughs> That's something we we've been doing in the last few seasons is is voting at the end of projects, which is the better version, the book or the movie. Um, clearly, in my opinion, it is the book. James, the book. Yeah, it's the yeah. book. Tyler. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. I wanted to. <laughs> I wanted to make a joke out of saying it's the movie, but I can't. I can't even do that to this. Yeah. The book is so much better. And, so much better. And, like, having said that, I will give the benefit of the doubt. Like, 
it's still i think that this is a watered down <coughs> dumbed down version of what we get in the book which is what what's unfortunate to me i still didn't hate watching it it was just frustrating in comparison to the book to me yeah and maybe so, that's why i'm so so i'm like more angry about it is because i had just read the book and it like for me it was mm, like yeah. the, the so differences fresh. are so stark it was like oh my god yeah. you know so I know this is you guys don't really ever do this, but it's always fun for me when when you're looking at a movie that's made quite a while ago and they can reboot stuff after only like two or three years of a movie being out. If you guys could cast, you know, the Zaphod and Ford, <laughs> um, who would you guys put in those places now? So I would I would switch um, Martin Freeman. I would put him into the uh, the Ford role. And I would put Benedict Cumberbatch as the uh, as Arthur. <laughs> Reunite the Sherlock cast. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's hilarious. Uh, I I would great. not change Sam Rockwell. I'd just bring him back. <laughs> have him be Zaphod yeah. again. Oh, I just, one one thing I wanted to say about about Sam Rockwell's performance that he actually said that I thought was hilarious. Uh, Sam Rockwell said in interviews his portrayal of Zaphod was in, influenced by three people: Bill Clinton, Elvis Presley, and Vince Vaughn. Oh wow. <laughs> Yeah, many viewers, many viewers find a resemblance to George W. Bush as well, mm. <laughs> uh, especially in 2005, I'm sure. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think so you, the main thing is that I, I mentioned in our last episode, I would love to see an Edgar Wright directed version of this movie. Yeah, personally, mm, that, for that, sure. That, Give me yeah. like a Taika Waititi, any of those like vi- those like guys that just have absurdity as their style. Like, yeah. let's just, yeah, any of yeah, those guys. I really wouldn't know what to do with this material. That's what I would like to see. Yeah. Well, I think we should probably start wrapping this up. Uh, Tyler, this has been a lot of fun. Um, I recommend people check out your podcast between Lewis and Lovecraft. If you're interested in the background <laughs> for D&D, check out the Gary Gygax episodes. I'm enjoying those right now. Yeah, I really appreciate that, man. And and like I said, we we did do uh, an episode on uh, Douglas Adams where yeah. I call him Adam Douglas for at least half of it. So that's <laughs> fun. Um, so if you guys can't just can't get enough of Douglas Adams, we he did a lot of other stuff as well. So um, he's a super interesting guy. Um, cool. And yeah, and I know that, that we are hoping to uh, do one of your correspondence episodes at some point. Um, I'm not sure when that'll come out and we haven't recorded it yet. So if, as long as we can yeah. get it all set up and, and going, um, that's something that our listeners could look forward to. Um, eventually that'll come out if we get it <laughs> done. Yeah. I mean, as soon as I can, as soon as we can make this happen yeah. again, I want to get you guys on, on our show because um, going into the summer, we've got a lot of really interesting people to talk about. And, and I think that having you guys on our show would just fit perfectly with some of the crazy stuff that we're going to be getting into. Cool. Perfect. Uh, yeah. Thanks a lot, Tyler. And uh, we'll let you go. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Tyler. So at this point in the episode, we usually say, if you enjoyed it, please leave us a rating and review. But this time I'm actually going to ask you to, to tweet about it. If you enjoyed this episode, do a post on whatever social media you use and let your followers know that you enjoyed the Ink to Film podcast uh, and tag us in it. I would love to see that. That would be awesome, yeah. And make sure to connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. If you would like to support the podcast in another way, we have a Patreon that is, as we speak, sending out uh, merch for the first time ever. I, I got the notification that it's being shipped out to people. Um, very cool stuff. Um, also, we put bonus content on there every month. We have lots of it on there, so check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash ink to film if you would like to know more. And thank you to Jeremy Blake for the use of our intro and outro music. 
Oh, and one more thing. If you wanted to buy uh, any of the books for upcoming projects, I have like the next three books we're going to be covering on our bookshop, which I'll have a link to in the show notes. Um, You can go on there and see some of the books we have coming up. And we want to announce our very next project since you stuck around to the very end. Uh, We are going to be covering The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and the Sleepy Hollow film by Tim Burton. Uh, which I think it's the first Tim Burton project we've done, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think w- what it was was uh, Coraline. There was some question about like... Has the, well, Coraline has the weird connection to Coraline connected to Nightmare Before Christmas and Nightmare Before Christmas everybody thinks is Tim Burton but isn't That's Tim Burton. So yeah. it just goes on and on. It's Henry Selleck and he's on Coraline, so... yeah. Anyway, I, that's a movie that like I barely remember. I think I watched it in high school, and um, I'm gonna be really curious to get into it, learn about the story, watch the movie. Um, and, you know, it's it's we like to celebrate horror year round. You know, even though this looks like an, a slam dunk Halloween project, we just want to do it now, and we'll find something else for Halloween later on, and we'll probably cover a couple other horror projects in the meantime. Yeah. Right? I remember really liking Sleepy Hollow, yeah, when it like was pretty pretty new. Um, it'll be interesting to go back to it. It was definitely like a movie that I vibed with in my, when I was a teenager. So we'll see if I still feel the same. Yeah, we'll we'll find out. Hopefully, you join us for our journey with uh, Sleepy Hollow, getting a little bit goth and spooky in April. I like it. Um, and until next time, thanks for listening. listening.